All right. So, uh, so this psalm, I've already mentioned uh, that it is very similar to Psalm 52. Uh, and like Psalm 52, and like several of the psalms that we have considered lately, we have the occasion of this psalm, which is always so helpful. Uh, I, I wish that we had the occasion of every psalm. We have the occasion of many of them. Um, but not all of them. And it is so helpful to know what's going on in the background, what's going on in the mind of the heart of the psalmist, when we, when we know what gave rise to that psalm in, in the first place. And that comes in the inscription or the superscription. It's just that part that may be in italics or in all caps just prior to the beginning of the psalm. It says, "...to the choir master with stringed instruments, a mascal of David." And then this is the occasion when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? You can see how the similarity with uh, 52, because in 52, Doeg uh, told uh, told Saul uh, about David. And so that's the occasion. This It was a group of folks this time, the Ziphites, instead of Doeg. Uh, and this time, actually, Doeg only ratted David out uh, once, but the Ziphites did it twice. And that uh, story is recorded in 1 Samuel 23, uh, and then the second time is recorded in 1 Samuel 26. So the Ziphites are a, folks, are a group of folks that uh, may be a family name. Um, we don't know a whole lot about these people. They just kind of flash in appearance Um, we see Ziphites, we see the land of Ziph. We don't know a whole lot about them other than that they lived in the region of Judah where David was hiding from Saul at that time. And the fact that they live in the region of Judah is significant because very likely the Ziphites being in the region of Judah, you may recognize that, that's David's tribe. David is of the tribe of Judah. And so these folks were his tribesmen, probably. I mean, I know that uh, they probably married around in the different tribes and things of that nature, but he probably had some distant kinfolk over in the Ziphites, right? There were, there were some, uh, perhaps even some, uh, some, some family members. They were certainly members of the, of the same tribe, and that would have been significant, probably more significant then than it is today, And what I'm getting at is the fact that these Ziphites from David's own tribe, maybe even distant family, made the betrayal even worse. It just hurt that much more. These folks should have been his friends, should have been his close companions. But instead, while David is hiding in the land of Ziph, the Ziphites rat David out. So Psalm 52 is obviously pointed at an individual. While Psalm 54 is pointed at this group of people. Also, I think that uh, if, you, if you recall, Psalm 52 seems to take, and I certainly recall Psalm 52 because I also prepared that sermon. <laughs> uh, Psalm 52 seems to take the shape of a song about Doeg and, uh, and David and then kind of contrasting their relationship to the steadfast love of God. In Psalm 54, it doesn't really take the shape of a song as, it much, as much as it takes the, takes the shape of a prayer to God for salvation and vindication of David's enemies. So 
So I think even, even we can see something already here, because as, in tr- as is true in all of the Word uh, of God, uh, applications abound in this passage. And, and uh, David, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, rather Dale even kind of referenced this when he talked about Psalm 52, like responding. How does David respond to this act against him, this evil man acting against him? Well, he sings a song, right? And then in verse, uh, 50, or I'm sorry, Psalm 54, how does David respond to these people acting against him, betraying him, these close uh, people, these folks from David's own tribe, how does he respond? Well, he responds with prayer. So in Psalm 52, he responds with singing. Psalm 54, he responds in prayer. And I think that we can learn something from this. David can do this not by his own strength, but because he trusts, as he says in Psalm 52 and 8, in the steadfast love of the Lord forever and ever. And as he says in Psalm 54, 4, because God is his helper. And as I I was looking at this and thinking, man, this teaches us, this response of David teaches us, and it reminded me of, of the story of Paul and Silas, right? Uh, when, when they were thrown in jail, they had been betrayed. They had been beaten. And it wasn't because they were doing anything evil. It was because they were, they were doing the right thing. They were just being faithful to God. And, and so there's a connection there between David and Paul and David in the old covenant and Paul and Silas in the new covenant, just be fa- being faithful to God. But they received these hardships because of their faithfulness. They were beaten and thrown in jail. But then look at Acts chapter 16, verses 22 through 25, that just give us a, a snapshot of that story. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the in, into the inner prison, so it just keeps getting worse, and then fastens their feet in stocks so they can't even get comfortable to uh, kind of ease some of the pain of where they had been beaten. But then listen to their response, and we know the story, many of us know the story, about midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. So what was, what was Paul and Silas's respond, response? Well, it was the same as David's response. It was prayer and singing. And I think that the reason they respond this way is the same reason that David responded this way. And that is because they trusted in the steadfast love of God. They knew that God was their helper. It didn't matter the circumstances. It didn't matter the difficulties. We, know, we trust in the Lord. We trust in His steadfast love. We know that God is our helper. And so... How can we keep from singing, right? How, how can we keep from praying and singing? And, and beloved, this teaches at least me so much about how to respond to life's betrayals. Because we know that there are going to be folks who betray us. We know that difficulties are going to come. And they're not going to come 
always because of goof-ups that we make. Sometimes the difficulties come in our lives just because we're being faithful. We're just doing what we know we ought to do. And we still receive these difficulties and these betrayals. And our, I think our immediate response is frustration, aggravation, anger, and, and the list can go on of negative ways to respond. But this this response teaches us that the way we ought to respond is singing in prayer. That is the opposite of the, of the way that we feel. But the reason we can respond that way in these betrayals of life, even if people, even if the folks that are closest to us betray us, the reason we can respond in such a manner is because we trust in the Lord. We don't trust in the circumstances of life. We know that God is our helper and He will help us in the midst of our hardships so we can sing and pray in those times. So already I just... See how this psalm teaches us so much. But, but as we're going to see in, in Psalm 54, that this, that this psalm has a movement to it. And it's a movement from a pleading prayer to a promise of praise. So David moves from pleading with God to vowing to God that he will offer this free will offering. And so that movement structures and provides the the outline for the psalm for us today. We will see David making a plea to God for God's help and salvation in in, in verses 1 through 3 and vindication against David's enemies. And then verses 4 and 5, we'll see a declaration of David's trust in the Lord as his helper and vindicator. And then finally, in verses 6 and 7, we will see David promise to offer a sacrificial praise to God for the deliverance and vindication that he is certain or he knows God will bring. And we'll see why he is so certain of that as we move along. So first, let's look at verses 1 through 3 and let's look at David's plea to God. First of all, it is a plea for salvation. David makes a plea for salvation. He says, God, save me. Oh, God, save me by your name. And remember, in the context of this prayer, David, having been betrayed by the Ziphites, the reason he is betrayed by the Ziphites is because they told on him or told where he was hiding to Saul. So he's fleeing from Saul. And Saul is not just trying to bring about uh, justice, Saul's trying to kill him. And so the fact that the Ziphites betrayed him in such a way actually jeopardizes his life. And so what David needed was, was God to rescue him. He needed God to rescue him before Saul's tracking him down, right? And he's hiding. But now he needs it even more because of what the Ziphites uh, did because of the betrayal of the Ziphites. And so David responds and, and cries out to God, God, save me by your name. And, and, and this phrase, by your name, is significant. Actually, it appears again in verse 6. He says, I will give thanks to your name. And it appears in Psalm 52, uh, 52 9, he says, I will wait for your name. 
it, it, this, is, this is significant and it's worth exploring because I think it brings some significant meaning to the text. What does in your name mean or by your name? What, what does it mean when we talk about the name of God? I alluded to it in the call to worship this morning. The name of God or by your name, or in your name, especially in the Old Covenant, is another way of referencing God's strength and God's character. It comes from the Exodus story. When God reveals His name, Yahweh, or it appears in our scriptures, uh, LORD in all caps, L-O-R-D in all caps. And so this is a, this is a, it comes from the Exodus story. God reveals his name as Yahweh or as Lord and as the deliverer of the Israelites. That's, that's what God is doing. He reveals his name to Moses. He had made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, the uh, Exodus tells us, and I wish I would have thought of this. It just popped into my mind. I think it's in Exodus chapter 6, but uh, you can look that up later. But God reveals his name, to, or he rather makes a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it's to Moses that he reveals his name. And so this is, this is significant here. So God reveals himself as the deliverer of God's people. And that has significance with him revealing his name. And this, and this must be what David has in mind because it fits the context perfectly in both Psalm 54 and Psalm 52. In Psalm 52, David, unlike Doeg, is trusting in the steadfast love of God and he has confidence to wait for the name of God, he says in verse 9, to deliver him and vindicate him. And so you see God's strength to deliver and his character to vindicate unrighteousness. That's what happened in the Exodus story, didn't it? So God delivers his people. That's his strength. He brings them up. He tells them all the time, I brought you up with a strong hand, right? So that's his strength. But then also we see his character. He will not let the unrighteousness of the Egyptians stand before him. And so he drowns all of them, or at least their military might, in the Red Sea. And the Egypt, or rather the Israelites, spoil the Egyptians. So this is his name. He delivers them by his name, his strength, and his character. And so God or rather David, uh, he is speaking of God's deliverance and vindication in Psalm 52. And in Psalm 54, verse 1, David prays for God to deliver him from Saul, who now seemed to have an advantage over David because of the betrayal of the Ziphites. But then in 54, 6 and 7, David says he will give thanks to the name of God, Indeed, referencing God's name as revealed to Moses. Look down in verse uh, 6. That uh, all caps Lord or Yahweh is there. So David then reveals he can offer praise to God because he is confident that God will deliver him and vindicate him by your name. God's strength and God's character. God, you are strong to save me and you are righteous to vindicate my enemies. This is save me by your name, by your strength and by your character. 
And this is, this is the beauty. This has been one of my favorite things about working through the Psalms is that it has just shown me more and more how the old covenant, it doesn't, it doesn't merely whisper the coming of Jesus Christ. It almost shouts it sometimes. And we can see this beautiful and plain gospel connection right here. In the first part, we're not even halfway through the first verse. Don't worry. Uh, this is the longest part. But we're not even halfway through the first verse. And already there is an immediate gospel connection. God has revealed his name to his people and shown that he is mighty to save his people and to execute righteousness on their behalf. Do you know that how God has shown that to his new covenant people? How has God revealed his name to his new covenant people? Well, Matthew 1, 21 through 23 gives us a hint. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Again, here is where the old covenant is screaming about Jesus, behold, the virgin shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. How has God revealed his name? Is it not in Jesus, in Emmanuel, God with us, that God has revealed his name, that God has revealed his strength and character most clearly to his people? Think about it. It is, in, it is in the life of Jesus that we see the perfect holiness and righteousness of God. Do we not see the perfect character in Jesus? The perfect character of God in Jesus. We also see the power of God. Numerous people in Jesus' ministry are healed, delivered from demons, brought back to life, seas are calmed, the molecular structure of liquids are changed in the flash, and you know that the list can go on. But it is in the death and resurrection of Jesus that perhaps we see God's power to save and to execute righteousness, righteousness most clearly revealed. Listen, because God is righteous and cannot excuse sin... The human dilemma is that we all deserve God's wrath because we are all sinners by nature due to the fall of the first humans, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. However, in the death of Jesus on the cross, God redeems his people. He reveals his strength and character. He redeems his people from their sins by pouring out the wrath that was due their sins on due their sins on Jesus as a substitutionary atonement for their sins. So there's the righteous character of God. He will not excuse sins. Well, how does he excuse our sins? He pours out his just wrath on the substitution of uh, uh, the substitutionary atonement in Jesus Christ. The person, I should say, of the substitutionary atonement in Jesus Christ. And to prove that this atoning sacrifice was in fact acceptable to God, God raised Jesus from the dead on the third day. And this is how God is both, the ju is both just 
and still the justifier of ungodly sinners like us. And that's Romans 3.26. Further, God takes that perfectly holy and righteous life that I just spoke of, that Jesus lived, and He credits it to our life account. So when God looks at the life of His people, He sees the perfect, holy, and righteous life of Christ. Beloved, that is good news indeed. 2 Corinthians 5.21, that famous passage says, For our sake, He knew Him to be no... Knew Him... Or I'm sorry, let me back up. I'm getting all excited. For our sake, He made Him... To be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Unbelieving friend, hear my voice today and exclaim with the psalmist, Oh God, save me by your name. You can see and know, unbelieving friend, the strength and character of God. If you call out to God, save me by your name. And beloved saints, who are the righteousness of God in Christ? If you are straying, if you are struggling, if you are wounded, perhaps even by a betrayal of your closest friends, cry out to God like David, save me by your name. I can assure you on the authority of God's word in Romans ten thirteen that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Cry out to God, save me by your name. But David not only prays for salvation, but he also prays for vindication. And this is, this is important because as in Psalm 52, it shows that David's trust is in the Lord, not in his ability to justify himself. Do you see that? God's saying, vindicate me. He's not saying, give me strength to vindicate or let me get at him, Lord. Don't hold me back. I'll get at him. That's, that's, not, that's not at all. God, you vindicate. I know that you're righteous. I trust you. And I am praying for you to vindicate your name. Je- David is jealous for the righteousness of God. He knows God is just. And he knows that for God to maintain his justice... The enemies of God must be avenged. It's also noteworthy that David refers to the Ziphites as strangers. What does he what does he mean by strangers? Some have even said, well, maybe the Ziphites were just a, a foreign people that were leftovers in the land of Judah. But uh, some of the Hebrew uh, manuscripts actually have the word strangers as insolent men. And, that, and it certainly, the Hebrew can certainly mean that. And, and I would say that more than likely that is the correct translation. Insolent men, because this identical passage of Scripture actually appears in 86.14. And it appears in 86.14, Psalm 86.14, as insolent men. But either way, the Ziphites, by siding with Saul, who is the king God rejected, they have sided against David, who is the anointed king of Israel. And because of siding with Saul, the rejected king, and against David, the anointed king, ultimately they are siding against God. They have not only made themselves the enemies of David, 
by making themselves the friends of Saul, but they have also made themselves the enemies of God. This means that they are insolent and ruthless. But it also means that they are due God's wrath. They have made themselves strangers to the true people of God. Even though you may call yourselves people of God, if you set yourself up against God, then you've made yourself a stranger. If you insolently set yourself or oppose God, then you have made yourself a stranger to the covenant of God, to the true people of God. You may be from the tribe of Judah, but you have, made, you have taken a stand against God. And to take a stand against God is to incur his vengeance. And so David says, avenge me or vindicate me by your might. And then we see in verses 4 and 5 this declaration that David makes of trust in God. And this is the central part of this psalm's movement. From a pleading prayer to a promise of praise. How do, how do we move from pleading in prayer... God, please save me and vindicate me to, Lord, I will offer a free will offering to you. Well, we place our trust in God. We declare our trust in God. David declares this trustful statement, God is my helper. He will respond to his plea for salvation and vindication by helping him and upholding his life. But we ought to notice that, that David does more here than say God will help. That would have been appropriate. And that would have been right. God will help. But, but notice that, God, that David says something about the character of God here. David says God is my helper. You see, so he's not just saying something about what God will do. He's saying something about who God is. Not God will help, but God is my helper. So his trust is not only certainly in, at least in what God will do, but more than that, his trust is in God himself. God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life, David says in that next stanza. He's not only speaking of something God will do, but he is saying something about who God is. God will help David because God is the helper of those who place their trust in him. God will uphold David's life because God is the upholder of life of the righteous. David does not only place trust in God because of what he does. That's certainly part of the reason, but he also trusts God for who he knows God to be. So God, not only do I trust you will help, the reason I trust you will help is because you are my helper. God will vindicate. He says that he makes this declaration of trust in God that he can trust God to vindicate to bring vengeance against his enemies and David's declaration of trust is is anchored again in who God is and because David trusts in the name of or he trusts in the strength and character of God he knows God he knows God will bring vengeance against his enemies and this is confirmed in verse 5 David grounds 
God putting an end to his enemies in God's own faithfulness. So David said, behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life in verse 4. And then because of who God is, he will return the evil to my enemies. And then he makes kind of this quick prayer here at the, at the end or that second part of verse 5. And he says, in your faithfulness, put an end to them. So he grounds God's vindicating righteousness in God's own faithfulness. And again, this just brings the gospel to the forefront. It shows how central the gospel is to this, to this passage When David anchors God's salvation in his name, as he did in verse 1, it brings the gospel to the forefront of the message of the psalm, especially as it applies applies to us. We know we can trust God. Listen, we know we can trust God because of what he has accomplished in Christ. God has revealed himself to us In Christ, He has shown us His name. He has shown us His strength and character. Do you see that? And we know we can trust God because of what He has accomplished in Christ. We see in Christ not only what God has done, but also who God is. We trust God will deliver us because He has proven He he is rather a deliverer when He delivered us in Christ. We trust God will uphold eternal life in us because He proved He was the author of life when He raised Christ from the dead and raised us with Him, as Ephesians 2, 4 through 6 tell us. We know God will vindicate His enemies because He proved in Christ He is the victor over all His enemies at the cross. We can, we can also make trustful declarations The same kind of trustful declarations. Perhaps even more solid trustful declarations than David. Because we have seen God reveal who He is. And He has proven to us what He will do in Christ. We sing this all the time. What a gospel. What a peace. We stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why do I trust when all hell assails? Because the circumstances do not determine my trust in God. What God is or who God is and what He has done is what determines my trust in Him. Came, an illustration came to mind, just fresh on my mind, just this week in, in my studies at Midwestern. Uh, We're reading through uh, Dr. Heath Lambert's Theology of Biblical Counseling. And in that uh, book, he he talked about a a lady that he pastored uh, who, in spite of what most folks would consider just an ideal Christian life, an ideal Christian wife and uh, a, a woman, in spite of that, she was plagued with constant worry over all sorts of things in her life. She feared her children might die in their sleep. She, she, feared, she feared that her husband would be hurt when he was out of town for work. That her family wouldn't have enough money to meet their obligations. Whether or not she made enough food she, for Thanksgiving or holidays. When family came over, she was just 
unnaturally concerned that there wouldn't be enough enough food for get-togethers and and just this a host of other things just this nagging anxiety and worry in their life and i thought that it was interesting and it came to mind that one of the primary ways that dr lambert pastored the lady through this nagging anxiety was to point her to what god accomplished for her in christ He wanted her to see and be reminded of the glory of the gospel of Christ. In so doing, she could see who God is and what God has done for her. And now she has an anchor. Now she has some some anchor. She is reminded of who God is and what God has done for her in Christ. And so she has an anchor that she can safely place her trust in God who has proven in Christ to her that he is trustworthy. If if you don't have enough food, God is still trustworthy because look look at what he has done for you in Christ. If the unthinkable happens and you were to lose one of your children, the deepest sorrow that a human could face, perhaps, I've I've heard that 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 is uh, the case, God, you can trust God because of what He has done in Christ. If your husband were hurt, whatever you fear, just know that God is trustworthy. And the reason that you know God is trustworthy is because of what He has done. It's because He has revealed His name to you. He has revealed His strength and character to you. And beloved, you may not know this about me, but doctors... Dr. Lambert's illustration spoke so sternly and at the same time so sweetly to me. And I'm sure that there are others like me who seem to have this nagging anxiety over all sorts of things in life. Can Can I say, dear ones, look to Christ. God has proven He is trustworthy in saving us and delivering us from our enemies. And listen, because of what He has shown us in Christ, we know He will return and set all things right and make all things new. And and there will be no more hurricanes or or power outages. I I thought of this. As a matter of fact, I was scrolling while Brian was praying trying to find the, the catechism question uh, that, that talks about, um, that talks about that the fact that God has not only redeemed us as persons, but that He has redeemed all of creation in Christ. And so, and so not only are we redeemed, but God has redeemed all of creation. And so we are going to live in a new creation, right? So we are not only going to live as, as redeemed people, that are delivered from the presence of sin and the power of sin, but we are also going to live as redeemed people forever ever, and ever and ever, having been delivered from the consequences of sin. We, when the new creation comes, there are not going to be all of the calamities and all of the things that are the earth groaning right now, awaiting the coming of the Lord in the new creation. No, it is going to not only be redemptive bliss for us personally, but the... The atmosphere of 
heaven and the new heavens and the new earth is going to be perfect and perpetual bliss. Isn't that good news? Especially when we've got a tree down and the across the street and some of you've got limbs on your house and you're still waiting on power and air conditioning you're like no good news it won't always be like this and you want to know why we can trust and be calm in the midst of all of these things because god has revealed himself to us in christ and we know he will make all things new no more broke down vehicles No more overdue bills, no more sickness, no more COVID, no more of all of this stuff, no more unsaved children. God is our helper and he is the upholder of our life. He is faithful and he will bring an end to all his enemies and make all things new. My eye will look on the triumph of my enemies. Finally, a promise of praise and offering. So this declaration of trust, God anchors, or rather David is anchored in who God is. And so now he can say, I know God is my helper. I know he is the upholder of my life. And I know that he will do right. And so I will offer a free will offering to you. He moves from pleading prayer to a promise of praise. Hopefully we can see that by now because God is his savior and David can place his trust in him. The natural response is a heart and life that flows out with praise, service, and thanksgiving. As a matter of fact, that's what the Lord's day is all about, right? It's for us. What do we do? We have gospel-centered sermons. We have gospel-centered music, uh, gospel-centered songs, gospel-centered prayers. What's all of this with the gospel? Why are we constantly talking about Jesus and dying on the cross? Can't we say something else? Can't we make something else central? No, beloved, we come in here and we want to remind you saints, Christ has died for our sins. Christ has defeated our enemies so that when we scatter and we go forth and we do what we ought to do, our lives are flowing out in praise that's the reason we come together and praise him here is to remind us of who god is so that then we move out and our life flows out in praise and thanksgiving and if you don't think that things will start uh becoming internal uh after you miss church well i think covid proved that to us didn't it right we start getting centered and we start moving in ourselves and we start thinking things are all about us. But when we come here and we're reminded, know us about Jesus, know us about others, then when we're reminded of who God is and his gratefulness, or rather his goodness to us, then our lives go forth in gratefulness, serving him, obeying the great commission, and doing what God has called us to do. We uh, Again, the... Our identity comes before the instruction. The indicative comes before the imperative. Yes, we're called to obey the Great Commission, but we're called to do it as an outflow of praise for what God has done for us. That's what the Lord's Day is about. It's reminding us. In a moment, we're going to, we're going to see with our eyes the, bro- the symbol of the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus, and that sparks our hearts. I mean, you want to talk about uh, uh, Wesley's uh, warm feeling, right? I've got it in my belly right now thinking about the goodness of God. 
Christ has delivered me. He has defeated every sin. And so now that gives me courage to go forth and live a life of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. To offer my life as a living sacrifice to Him. But if I'm just doing that without any context, you know what we call that? Legalism. David mentions he will bring a free will offering to the Lord. And that, now I said all that to say this. <laughs> it's a free will offering to the Lord. This, this kind of offering, it was not an obligatory offering that was brought to atone for sin. No, that's already been accomplished for us, beloved. Rather, this offering is an offering of thanksgiving for God's deliverance. It's an offering that reflects on what God has done and who God is. David says that he will bring this free will offering to the Lord based on what? Yahweh's good name. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to the Lord. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. Again, we see the connection here between who God is and what he has done. And it shouts the gospel message to us from the pages of the Old Testament. In verse 7, David acknowledges God has delivered him from every trouble. And he has seen with his own eyes how, how God has triumphed over all his enemies. So David will offer a free will offering to the Lord because of who God is, which informs what God has done and will do in David's life. And so it is, again, with us. Our lives ought to flow forth in sacrificial service and worship to God because of God's good name. He has demonstrated His strength and character to us by redeeming us in Christ. We can trust Him and we can serve Him freely because of who He is and because of what He has done. So what betrayals hinder your trust in God this morning? What anxieties hinder your service to God? Beloved, look to what God has done in Christ and know you can trust Him and serve Him in all your life. As a matter of fact, as I alluded, I got all excited and got ahead of myself. As we approach the Lord's table today, the bread serves to remind us that Christ's body was broken for us. And that His blood was shed for us. It also serves to remind us that God has delivered us from our greatest enemy, sin, on the cross. And finally, the Lord's Supper reminds us that God will triumph over all His enemies. And we are just getting a small taste of when we will sup with Him in the new heavens and the new earth in the kingdom which is to come. Jesus said, I I won't drink of the wine until we sup together. And so when we take this wine, we remember these words and we are anticipating the time when we sup together with the Lord. So with present trust and hopeful anticipation, saints of God, we come and celebrate together what God has done for us in Christ. Before we pray and reflect and come to the Lord's table, I do want to say a word of warning 
For those who do not place their trust in Christ. For those that do not have confidence and trust in the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. This is not for you. Listen, friends, we desire you to stay and observe and fellowship with us afterwards. We plead that you would. But this supper commemorates that Christ's body was broken and blood shed for those who place their trust in him. And what our sincere and earnest prayer is that you will come to the place that you do place your trust in the name of Christ as your Savior, your Helper, and the upholder of your life. But until that time, we just ask that you abstain. Let's pray. Lord, I say hallelujah. Hope springs eternal. I sense that eternal hope welling up in my heart today. Lord, the the Spirit is bearing witness, Lord, with my spirit that I am a child of God. And it is not always, Lord, I don't always feel so much like this, but I just want to say thank you for it. Because, Lord, it delights my soul. It brings joy and trust and peace and calm in my heart, Lord. When my eyes look to Calvary and know that you redeemed me there. Thank you. I pray, Lord, that your people will also see and know and, Lord, even feel that today. That that hope would spring up within their hearts. And Lord, that it will bring tears of joy, that it will bring hymns and songs and shouts and declarations of trust and declarations of thanksgiving and all of these things, Lord, even as we partake of, of your supper. But Lord, I pray that, 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 that it will do what it always does in our lives and that it will just overflow into a life of thanksgiving and praise. That we are... Our lives are living sacrifices, a constant free will offering offered up to you regularly, continually to obey you, to do your will, to hear your voice and to heed your voice. Lord, as we approach the table, let it just be another one of those things that solidify this trust. You are so good to us in providing these ordinary means to us. Lord, I do want to say... And pray, God, if there, there is an unbeliever hearing my voice today, my, my earnest plea to you is save them by your name. Quicken their hearts. Make them realize, Lord, that their only hope is in you. Maybe they're in hardship or difficulty, Lord, and you have brought them to that place so that you can show them that their only hope is you. I just pray, God, that you would edify believers, save sinners today. And we pray it in Christ's name.